Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Test, test. I just want to make sure. Yep, I'm good. You good? Yeah, got me all paranoid that that um, <laughs> that garage that band. moment before. Yeah, I recently recorded, and I won't say which episode it was because I don't want that person to feel bad. But I recorded an episode recently, and we had to do it twice because oh, the first time it. the Garage oh. Band was not working for them. It was being spastic, <sighs> man. <gasps> it's so it's so hard with these things because I mean it's like. You know, theoretically, it should be super easy. It's like famous last words. I think that's kind of the mantra of every theater person who's like, you know, we'll just do it virtually. Like that, yeah, that won't be too yeah. much work, right? Hopefully, we've all been humbled to realize uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't transfer quite as seamlessly as we envision it in our minds. No, no. Did you record the heart and music thing? Are you participating in that? Oh, crap. <laughs> There's been it's so okay. much going on. You're in the process on. of moving. It's not the right time. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we're talking Fun Home because it was a listener request, and my guest for the day is real live lesbian Miss Alyssa Simmons. (laughs) (laughs) That's me, your real life lesbian, kids. (laughs) I'm so grateful you're here. Uh, we've you. known each other for quite some time now, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a chunk of time. You are supremely talented. I would venture to say one of my favorite interpreters of musical theater songs. Thank you, Jeff. That's so nice. It's true. When did we first meet? Did we meet? I don't know. I don't know when we first met, but... Um, so I had heard about the famous Jeffrey Scott Parsons for quite, for quite some time because, um, we both went to Brigham Young University. BYU. And so, yeah, we went there and, uh, yeah. So I remember as I was, you know, getting ready to venture off into the non-BYU world, people were kind of saying like, oh, I'm going to be in New York. I'm going to try New York. I'm going to try LA or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um... You know, LA is is home home for me where my family is. So I was like, yeah, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna do LA for a little while and you know, get my equity card and then maybe do New York. I don't know. And sure. all of all of the professors were like, Well, if you're going to do LA, you have got to get in touch with Jeffrey Scott Parsons. <laughs> <laughs> he's like so famous at BYU. Like he's the only one and, crazy enough to move to and, Los Angeles um, and dedicate his life to musical theater. And I was like, oh, sure, great. He sounds nice. And I had like, you know, we were just close enough in school years that like. We just missed each other. But I met, I think I met you after Summer of Love. Yeah. At, at Musical Theater West. Because I, I had just right. moved out here. That and... show was a show about your hair. Because you had yeah. your glorious blonde curly mane down for all the world to see. And like you, you would just sit in the audience and be like, who's the girl with the hair? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. That show was like um, somebody in the cast coined it like family friendly hair, the musical, <laughs> which mean, is like, which is wrong. totally true. And it's it's a fun time. But I think we met. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure that's where we first met. And then I was like, 
oh my gosh, you're Jeffrey Scott Parsons. All of the people have been telling me to <laughs> so come <stupid>. find <laughs> you here. <laughs> so dumb. Um, have you seen Fun Home? I have. When did you see it? I saw it in New York when I was oh, living there. Lucky. Immediate thoughts after seeing Fun Home. Oh my gosh. Well, it was very emotional. Um, well, I'd never ever seen a gay woman protagonist in a show before. Because Period. there 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 isn't one. <laughs> right. That we've seen. That we've seen. You know, there's obviously others written. So to see that type of character, to see that felt really big. It felt really like I was getting to see something so special. And I don't know Beth Malone, but I'd, I'd met her a couple of times. Um, she's an L.A. gal. So I, mm-hmm. yeah, to also see a, a gay woman playing a gay woman part yeah, <laughs> felt so, so special and so cool. Also, all-female creative team. What, what? Also awesome. So, yeah, that was my initial, my initial, like, feeling. It was very emotional, but the biggest thing that I felt was that I had just been witness to something really big and really, really important. Like both emotional and historic. Yeah, totally. That's great. The first time I saw it was at the Amundsen. It was the national oh, tour. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was... So you saw Kate Schindel. Yeah, I saw Equity President herself, Miss Kate mm-hmm, Schindel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was in the back of the orchestra, and I was impressed, but that's about it. Yeah, it didn't, like, pull at you. Interesting. No, I walked away feeling a little sad, obviously, because there's definitely sure, something tragic about the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I also felt a little icky, and mm. I, I wasn't sure why. Interesting. I felt that way after Next to Normal. Interesting. Okay. I felt like I had been forced to feel something for a couple of hours. And then Mm -hmm. at the end, they were just like, but here's a happy ballad. Everything's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, no, it's not. Everything is not. not. Nothing is fine, actually. Nothing is fine. (laughs) So I, I totally know that icky thing after a show where you're like, I... I feel like maybe they were like trying to inspire me, but I don't, I don't feel good. Yeah, I think that's a really great way of saying it. Now, that being said, I have since gone back and watched a bootleg mm-hmm. of the original cast of Fun Home in the original space. Oh, in the, at had, the public? Or, oh, yeah. no, no. Or I guess was it, it was Circle in the Square? Circle in the Square, yeah. Okay. And had a completely different experience. You know, I think that that tour, I think that there there's a tricky thing that happens with small shows, especially shows that honestly come from the public. Because have you seen you seen anything at the public before? No. Only okay. things that have so, resulted from being at the public. From being there, sure. And there's a lot of them, but like the thing is there's this there's this really like cool intimate Thing at the public because they can manipulate their space in so many different ways. And so a lot of times when it leaves the public, they they try to find spaces where it like makes sense. You know, like Circle uh-huh. in the Square is a great space that makes sense for something that's been in the public. But I remember seeing Spelling Bee at the Circle in the Square and then seeing it on tour and it like didn't work at all. Wow. Like I really feel like it didn't, like it lost all of the, parts to me that made it feel so relatable and so 
yes, like I'm watching this little slice of life happen. Mm-hmm. And I completely lost it, partially because I was super far away. Mm-hmm. But there's an intimacy in the circle in the square space that's not the way the Amundsen is. And no, it's not the sure. way and it's not the way most touring houses are. I don't know if I have ever seen a musical where I saw it and thought, this show should never be produced in a proscenium space. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I deeply believe that about Fun Home. I think that because it is Allison's story and in many ways adult Allison is constantly weaving throughout life, if it's right. presented flatly like that, you lose a, a, an entire dimension of totally. storytelling. Which is like super interesting because she's a cartoonist. So nor- like normally she works from that flat perspective, Fair like the real enough. Alison Bechtel. But right. it's interesting though that like in the musical storytelling of it, we need that depth. We need to be able to see her working her way through this past part of her life. You're so right. She's literally working her way through it. And if we're mm-hmm. if we go any amount of time where we forget about her, I think you feel disconnected from your protagonist. Totally. Now, interesting caveat in our lives. We are both gay people who went to BYU, which Indeed. I think usually breaks most people's minds. Like, how does how does that work? And I usually say very carefully. And um, <laughs> at, the sa- at the same time, though, I have stayed in the church, in the Church of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I would venture to say that you're not active or in the church anymore. Is that true? I am not. Yes, that is true. I, um, for me personally, didn't feel that I could remain in the church with, um, with the way that things currently are. Yeah. My family is still active in, in the church, and um, I love them, and they love me, which is really... What a huge I'm blessing very, that I'm is. I'm very, very, very lucky and very fortunate. But yeah, for me, I felt... Um, Without getting like too heavy too quick here, um, no. welcome I to felt, my show. Um, <laughs> uh, I felt that um, I felt that no matter what I chose, I would have to abandon a part of myself. Mm. So I felt that if I were to stay in the church, I would be denying myself any sort of um, temporal happiness, like finding love and companionship. And I felt that if I left the church and decided to allow myself to to find love and find a person, that I would be abandoning my my faith and my whole spiritual background, um, which is so important to me. But thankfully, lots of years later, I have come to know that like that is just not true. That you yeah. can you can totally have both things. You can have uh, temporal happiness and love and companionship, and you can also have faith. It looks different for a lot of people, and that's like the awesome and cool, amazing thing about life is being able to figure out what works for you. So you and I are different in that way, but also the same in that way. I absolutely agree. And I, I talk so much about, I know I do, talk about so much of my experiences within the framework of the church because it it, like musical theater, has probably been one of the largest structures in forming totally. my life experience and who I am. And having you on this episode, I definitely wanted to take some time to shed light on someone else's experience because I know that not everybody would have the same reaction that I 
or or yeah. at least come to the yeah. same conclusions that I have about what is right for me. I I was going through the, exactly the same thing you were talking about, which is like, why do I feel like I have to choose one or the other? Sure. That feels like I'm splitting myself in half, and I don't think that's what God would want me to do. Yeah. And then in like an answer to prayer, I realized you don't you are not two people, you are one person and your opportunity is to show up as yourself and let people love you. And if you do that, I promise I'm speaking as the Lord, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> um, and if you do that, I bet a lot of people will. And yeah. so I kind of just trusted trusted it and went with it <clears throat> and it's really been it's been an incredible experience That's that so has awesome. forced me to be open in a way that I think Fun Home really is talking about, right? Yeah. The truly inspired and profound truth that you are a whole person. Mm-hmm. Let yourself be seen. Yeah, um, absolutely. And you're also not not wrong or bad. I think that's right. like a that's a huge thing, especially within people who are raised in a in a um in a faith of some kind, is that there's something broken in you mm-hmm. that like either you need to fix or get rid of or push down or release or however you wanna say it, yeah. you know. But like I think that that is one of the biggest messages in Fun Home is that it's a pretty tragic story. Spoiler alert, everybody, if you haven't seen it. But, Happy um, Pride, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, that idea of, like, you know, Allison fighting so hard to to live her truth and how heartbreaking it was that she couldn't, she couldn't help her dad because he was on his own journey and his own thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, yeah, this sort of um, idea that you're not a, a damaged good if you're different, you know, quote unquote, like yeah. that's what makes like learning who you are so special. You're absolutely right. I think sometimes we we fault religion for being this kind of structure that doesn't make room for for those differences, for mm-hmm. what makes us special. Mm-hmm. And I I would say yes and <laughs> um, yeah. communities in general, right, are meant to mm-hmm. create some sort of safety in conformity. Whether that is a small town or a church or even a family. And in in Fun Home's case, I think it's a a family where there are certain rules set up to make sure that everybody is safe. Mm -hmm. And then once you realize that your life and who you are is in direct conflict with those rules, then there's conflict. Totally. I think the the opportunity for us, and this goes, I think, even much larger in what our country is seeing in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. is that if we have a community that is actively forcing its members to decide what half person they're going to be, mm-hmm. then there's something fundamentally wrong. And it's up to that community to look within itself and see how can we structure ourselves to make everything as safe as it can be for everyone. Yeah, it's tricky. It's hard. Yeah, it's tricky. It is so tricky, but so important. Talking about the show itself, Fun Home is a biography musical. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. It's a bio musical about Alison Bechtel, who is a famous cartoonist. I guess lesbian cartoonist is how she would probably refer to herself. Born 1960, Pennsylvania. Her father owned a funeral home. Yes. Yeah, he was a what is what is that person called? Uh, an undertaker. Yeah, right? isn't there? Is that is what they're a, called? I mean, yeah, but I thought there was like a nicer term. <laughs> I just like undertaker. undertaker is someone like so the scary. Undertaker with, like... sounds like somebody who like works for the WWE. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And their costume is like this like bald cap that like goes back like halfway through their halfway back their head and they like Thank are you. hunched over. Exactly. Yeah. So there anyway, probably, there probably is another word for that, but let's just call him the Undertaker. The, the Undertaker. And, <laughs> and which is what the title Fun Home is referring to is a funeral yes. home. She is a cartoonist. She starts a long-running comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For that came to critical and commercial success in the early 2000s. Now, I always joke that I know most things because of musical theater, but the fact is I knew about Alison Bechtel before Fun Home, and I'm very proud of this. Wow, because look of at the, you. Right? Because, because of the Bechtel of, test? Exactly. Yay! Exactly, Good. because of the Bechtel test. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, so... um. The Bechtel test, um, we actually just talked about it on my little Star Wars podcast as well. Oh, cute. Um, So the Bechtel test is a way um, to measure the representation of women in fiction. That's like the easy bare bones way to describe it. Um, There are three little bullet points of criteria that something has to have in order to pass the Bechtel test. Um, And those three things are that the movie or play or musical – has to have two women in it. That's the first one. Second one is number that... Number one. Yes. Um, number two is that they have to talk to each other. <laughs> which is mm-hmm. which more is, challenging uh, you than would, you think. You would, you would be surprised how many things do not pass this test. For sure. And the, third, and the third one is that they have to talk to each other about something other than a man. You guys. And that's it. That's the Bechtel test. And it's... Pretty terrifying how few things pass the Bechtel test in our current day and age. It's yeah. really insane. It's really insane. Yeah. When I first heard of the Bechtel test, I believe Wizard of Oz was used as an example of an older film that does pass the Bechtel test, right? Yes, because absolutely. Dorothy's talking to Glinda or even mm-hmm. the Wicked Witch. Even the Wicked Witch, yeah. These are interesting female characters that are talking about bigger things. And in that, you know, like comic strip is the moment when she talks about the Bechtel test and then it caught fire and created and a, she, sens- like, it, a sensation. Yeah, she admit- admittedly says like, it was kind of like a very insidery joke. Like it was not necessarily meant to become this thing that yeah. especially feminist reviewers and cr- um, critics kind of base their their reviews off of. So exactly. it's interesting. She even said that it came from one of her friends. Like, they had had this talk, and like most artists, she's like, oh, that would make a great strip or a great piece of cartoonery. <laughs> yeah, I think her I, – I know her last name was Wallace, her friend, because a lot of people call oh, it yeah. the, Bechtel, the Bechtel-Wallace test. But I don't know her first name, so sorry. Sorry, Madam Wallace. Ms. Wallace, we'll call you. Ms. She then creates a graphic novel based on her life, which is called Fun Home, 
And that then becomes the basis for the musical, which is written by composer Janine Tesori, who I think is one of the true treasures of modern musical theater. Oh, there is I love me, Janine no Tesori. No one I... as versatile as Janine no. Tesori. No, if you were to tell a human being that the same person who wrote Shrek also wrote Caroline or Change, they would be like, mm-mm, but yeah. And every, every single musical that she comes out with throws me for a loop even more. Mm-hmm. I, I first remember her because she got nominated for Best Score at the Tony Awards for a play. She yes. wrote this, the music for the Lincoln Center production of Twelfth Night. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm thinking, all right, is she a classical composer? Right. Nope, because then the next show she comes out with is Thoroughly Modern Millie. Wait, yep. what? Now you're going to give me Gimme Gimme and forget about the boy? Yeah. Crazy. So they're like, okay, so she does like very consumable traditional musical theater. Nope, because then she does Carolina Change, which is some of the densest musical theater writing that we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After that, she does Shrek. I mean, I, did you see Soft Power here I in Los Angeles? I didn't get to see it. No, I didn't get to see Alyssa, it. Alyssa, it was the most original theater-going experience I've ever had in my life. That's amazing. That's what I heard. And I am really sad that I didn't get to because I'm such a fan of hers. I'm such it's, a fan of hers. For those who don't know, there was this musical called Soft Power that played in Los Angeles. And it was super weird and, like, not perfect. But, like, the originality just continually impressed me all night long. If I can boil it down to one sentence, I would say soft power is based on the premise that in the future, musical theater is saved by this phenomenon, kind of like Hamilton, but like the biggest musical theater phenomenon of all time that is written by the Chinese about the 2016 election. That's so weird. That's what the entire musical is about. Oh, man. It was so crazy. So she was crafting a score that was based on the traditions of Rodgers and Hammerstein, but then put through the the lens of Eastern music. Oh my it was gosh. incredible. And I'm so glad that she is the one to have that undertaking as well, because like... She's also an undertaker, apparently. She is also <laughs> an undertaker. <laughs> oh, Janine Tesori, the undertaker. Um, really, though, because who on earth... Could do that. Yeah. Only her. Because that's yeah. so complex and so weird. <laughs> exactly. She seems to be someone who is as creative as she is mathematic. Mm. Mm-hmm. Everything, I've, I read a couple of interviews, and it's amazing how she will use musical terminology to talk about something that isn't musical. And you're like, mm. oh, I see how your brain works. For mm. example... Here's a quote from her. Music for me is like the architecture of a beautiful thing you're envisioning, and the way to get there is intervallic. Whoa. Right? So, like, she's using the term interval to talk about the way to get to things in architecture, but she's actually talking about music by using a term from music. Crazy. Wow. So crazy. In talking about Fun Home, she talked about how she was so interested in this house and to know the counterpoint that was happening within the house. Mm. Counterpoint, another musical term, which is when people are singing different things that happen to go together, and yet she's looking at it from a realistic place in which all of these different lives are happening in the same home. 
and yet mm. somehow are relating to each other. Wow, that's so great. And you can hear that, especially a per- perfect example in the score of the show is um, Helen's song when she's playing the piano and yeah. Bruce is having an affair upstairs. Mm-hmm. Right. And she's and she's playing the piano and singing the song. So there's that like total juxtaposition and that counterpoint that she's talking exactly. about. Exactly, while the kids are watching TV. Yes. Now, uh, she also likes to work with playwrights instead of musical theater standard book writers. Yeah, book, book writers and yeah. So in the case of Fun Home, she works with Lisa Cron. Mm-hmm. who had written several plays, all of which had an edge to them, but were also comedic in nature. But yeah. she had certainly never... Somebody, somebody described her, or maybe she was even self-described as like... It might have been a review from... I read I read a review from one of the plays that she wrote um, yeah. called um, 2.5 Minute Ride. Yes, which is, which is about... Um, yeah, it's, it's about her um, going back to Auschwitz with her father. Um, and his his parents were killed there. Yeah, she has she has the, I haven't I haven't read that play, but I maybe maybe when things aren't um quite so heavy in the world, I'll, I'll read it. What are you talking about? You're not you waking mean? up right now and being like Auschwitz. <laughs> let's, let's go. Let's go. Um, yeah, they described her as as having this this great sort of um, seesaw balance with with horror and with humor. Yes, like, really, sort of horrific situations but finding finding the the humor and the levity that's a great way of saying it thank you for saying it like that that's absolutely perfect but has never written a musical before and you listen to these lyrics and they're absolutely brilliant they're so good they're so good i know i actually didn't i didn't know until doing some more research for this that she had never written a musical before like, are you, Which is really crazy because usually you can tell. <laughs> usually there's like a few moments where you're like, oh, no, I mean, that's well, a great line, but those don't, those syllables don't fit in the notes. My sweet, <laughs> my sweet little baby angel. They don't fit in there. That's a good word, but it's a quarter note. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, her, her lyrics are amazing. For some reason, I just remembered. Remember that Katy Perry song from her prison album that was. I, maybe you don't. I don't know if you're a Katy Perry fan or not. But there's a there's a Katy Perry album. It's called Prism, and there's a song <laughs> on it called. Um, oh shoot, what is it? Unconditionally. Oh yeah, I do know that song. And the way that she put it in the notes, it goes unconditionally, and it drives <laughs> no. me no. absolutely bonkers. That's horrible. Because it makes it impossible for me to remember the title of the song because no one says that word unconditionally. No, they don't. (laughs) All right. Do you know who didn't do that? Lisa Cron. Lisa Cron. And we're happy about it. And then she won two Tony Awards for... Well-deserved. For doing that. Now, from what I understand, they really explored the different ways to bring this very unconventional source material to the stage. They originally were going to go very cartoon with it, like with the cartoons being projected and things playing Mm. out in real life. And they figured all of these things out through lab workshops. Have you ever done labs? I have. I always think it's interesting for people to understand about how musicals get put together. What was your experience with labs and was it before or after the strike? It was before. 
Okay. I have not I have not done one since. Cool. I did one in New York and I've done a couple here in LA. And how would you describe them? Like what did it, what does it consist of? You know, every situation is slightly different. Sometimes the show comes really flushed out already. Maybe they've already done a couple of readings, maybe they've mm-hmm. already done a lab. Maybe they, you know, have really been working this material for a long time. I have done others that (laughs) 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 choosing my words so wisely right now. (laughs) I have done others where it is very clear that maybe this is the first musical they've ever written. So Mm. that's a that's a one thing. It's also very clear that they don't really know what the tone of the show is. And sometimes that has to do with a book and sometimes that has to do with like a thousand billion other things. Like yeah. I, my dad is a, is a composer um, of musicals. So I, Plug Brett Simmons. I, I grew up in this, um, this sort of like world of seeing like lots of his shows get workshopped and go through labs. And yeah, so that's really interesting. I've never thought of it. Like I've, I've seen so much of that in my in my life because of my my dad's line of work, but um, sometimes you pretty much do the ink, and mm-hmm. that's what it is. And other times, I will tell you another one of my experiences, which was basically like nothing was flushed out at all, and I was required as the actor, which is like totally fine by me. Like I'm I'm the person that brings these these words and these songs to to life right here. But so many things where they're like, oh, well, Alyssa, just add a riff here. Oh. Or or Alyssa, make up a line here to get you out of the scene. Like straight up Write me the show for us. writing the show. I'm not going to say what show this is, but like there are things that I sang in rehearsal in many shows that have since had lives that I'm not a part of, but that like a thing that I did in rehearsal is now the ink in the music. Wow. So there's that. Okay, off the record, you have to tell me what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I will. You have to bleep it out or don't, just don't put this Absolutely, no. This I, 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 w- I won't put it in. So then the actors' union kind of stepped in in these situations to be like, okay, there are actors like, like Alyssa here who are going into labs giving of themselves as artists to create projects that then become hits starring quote unquote names because I get it. Mm-hmm. It's Broadway. It's a business. They have to sell tickets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then all of that creative work that was done in order to get the show to that point is not being rewarded or paid for. So there was a strike from our union to make sure that that was going to change. And it has since changed where that now if you do a lab and it gives birth to a musical that becomes a big enough hit, you are then given essentially residuals once mm-hmm. that show turns a profit in its Broadway incarnation. Yep. You know, just in case you you know don't get cast in the final production, which is very likely. In the ca- mm-hmm. in the case of Fun Home, Beth Malone, who, like we said, is a California gal, was always part of it, from what I understand, from the get-go. And I love that they kept her from the get-go because she's absolutely perfect for the role. I can't think of anybody else doing it like her. The way that she Mm -hmm. was able to embody 
this person with both darkness and sadness and humor and a curiosity. So often in her performance, you see her watching her life with a, with a, a degree of curiosity and then got nominated for a Tony for it. Yes. So awesome. Through all of these labs, it comes to Off-Broadway and then has a very successful run at the public. It then gets transferred to Circle in the Square, which I guess is like a three-fourths, right? Yeah, it's a thrust. So you have audiences on three-fourths of of the the four sides. Mm -hmm. And the show is a huge critical smash. It runs for several years, makes its money back, which is always a very impressive thing. Gets nominated yeah. for many Tony Awards in the 2015 season. It wins Best Musical, Best Score, Best Director, Best Book, as well as Best Actor for Michael Cerveris, who played the father. In terms of the other musicals nominated for Best Musical that year, there were An American in Paris, Something Rotten, and The Visit. So I think Fun Home was... Definitely the favorite of those. All great shows, all very different kinds of shows. But, yes, very uh, different. But still, Fun Home was, I think, the most critically acclaimed of them. I think everything else I want to talk about the show is actually in the show. So do you mind if we go great. through it real quick from the yeah. top? Yeah, of course. Of Let's course. take it from the top. Woo! Fun Home starts with us meeting adult Allison. And throughout the show, we see three different incarnations, if you will, of this character. We see adult Allison, then we see her younger self as a child, and then her teenage self going to college. So young, medium, and adult Allison, all three of whom were played brilliantly by their original actors. And right from the get-go, we know that Allison is a cartoonist and that she's kind of exploring her childhood, which gives birth to this opening sequence. I don't know if I'd even call it an opening number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, sequence is a good good way to describe it. Where we see her her childhood home, uh, which we've already discussed, was also a funeral home. In that home is her, who is the oldest child. She has uh, two brothers, and then she also has a mother and a father. Her father is a very demanding father. He is obsessed with antiques, so their house is kind of a museum. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that they always refer to the house as a museum because it stops being an actual home when it's a museum. It's meant to be right. looked at but not lived in. And kind of the hyper-focus on perfection is also very telling once you get to know what's going on with the father. At the end of this whole opening, Welcome to Our House on Maple Avenue, we learn two things. We learn that Allison feels like she and her father have very little in common and yet everything in common because she grew up to be a lesbian cartoonist and he grew up to be a closeted man who killed himself. End of the opening number. (laughs) Welcome to a little happy musical, everybody. (laughs) The rest of the show kind of bounces back and forth between these different times in her life, whether she's an adult, whether she's her youngest self, or whether she's her medium self. It's very inspired. And then when the Cher show came around, I was like, wait, so is this fun home, but with Cher? (laughs) Totally. They liked it, okay? It was a great device. (laughs) 
Now, one of the big important moments that we actually see small Allison connecting with her father is when they're playing this game of airplane. Now, Mm -hmm. for those who are listening and can imagine, picture her father lying on his back with his legs in the air, and then she comes and puts her, like, stomach on his feet, and then he pushes her up with his legs, so then she feels like she's flying. And there she says, like, she can see everything, and it's this really beautiful memory that she holds on to and I think becomes an important metaphor for the whole show. One of the other big things that happen in the life of young Allison is this big number called Come to the Fun Home, in mm-hmm. which she and her brothers have like concocted a commercial for their funeral home that sounds kind of like a Jackson 5 type Yeah, it's totally because, Jackson 5, Partridge Family, Brady yes. Bunch. Like, yeah. And to see these, like, three little kids just living their best life, they've, like, rehearsed it, you know, so intently to make their dad proud. And it also reminds us when this is taking place, yeah? We're definitely right, right. in that time of Motown, of the Partridge Family. Everybody's in browns and itchy sweaters. Uh-huh. Stripes and orange yes. and yes. When I was growing up, my mom's kitchen was orange and yellow. And oh, she that's great. Just the best. That's like so linoleum great. on the floor. Mm-hmm. And she said that when she and my dad built the house, that they got to the kitchen and were like, okay, we need to pick colors that are going to be classic and last forever. Orange and yellow it is. <laughs> I mean, it. It, was, it. it was just the time. What are some other important things that happened to Small Allison, though, besides these, these fun moments that I think are really important because they remind us that her she didn't have a bad childhood? Right. It wasn't, like, demented and abusive and spooky. There were mm-hmm. some spooky There were some spooky moments. We'll, we'll talk about those. But, yeah. Um, yeah, she had a – I mean, they called it, they called it the fun home. And, like, they even say that before they go into that number. Like, are you sure it's okay that we call it this? Like, that's just what our family calls our funeral home. And it's, like, even though they were, like, essentially living in a museum funeral home, like, mm-hmm. they still had a happy childhood. Not to mention the mom is an incredibly creative person. Yes. She's, yes. like, a director of theater. She's a teacher of the arts. And so there is a there's definitely a focus on art and creativity within the home, yes, which I think is also part of that balance. Yeah, totally. And you you learn pretty right off the bat too that they are supportive of Allison's drawings, mm. and they like you know especially her dad is like you have the ability to become a very famous artist. He's still mm. trying to control everything that she does. It's in mm-hmm. and in the um, scene maps. She has like a class assignment where she's meant to draw a map of all the places she knows and all the places that like her her family and her friends have traveled. And it's it's that thing that you were describing, like his need to have everything appear perfect, even though it's not, you know, it's far Definitely from. Not. Um, the way that everything looks and appears is is perfect and pristine and and restored and put together. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at his character. It's a brilliant performance by Michael Service. Once again, I'm talking about bootleg. Forgive me, people. But it's one of my favorite performances I've seen from yes, a male. Yes, it's so nuanced and it's so – it's that thing with actors where it's like, you know, the source material is good, but like mm-hmm. all of the 
all of the underneath of everything that he says and does is so, just like the character, so meticulously mapped out Mm -hmm. that that's why you're like, that's why it's so brilliant. And then you could tell through a bootleg that every part of him has been created. Yeah. You know? When nuance actually, reads on a bootleg, I mean, what better yeah, review? Yeah, and he's can you actually get? he's actually living and breathing this character. He's not he's not an actor. Like he's right. He is Bruce because these sorts of things, like his controlling of her her drawing, because she's also in a small way creating her style. She's discovering her style as an artist that mm-hmm, she wants mm-hmm. things that don't necessarily obey the laws of physics. And, you know, there is kind of a cartoonish nature to what she wants to create. And he's like, no, it needs shading. And look at point of view. And how does the light hit this and cast a shadow over here? Look how beautiful and real it looks. Right. And she's like, I'm 10. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you see that his desire to control or to make it better, to make it perfect, is based on something more than just being a quote unquote bad dad. You know, it's not and oh, and it's so brilliant because once again you have adult Allison watching all of this. So mm-hmm. I think it would have been very easy, and maybe this goes to the director, it could have been very easy to play this story as it's all happening from her perspective. Sure. It's everything sure. that she remembers and how this made her feel. And yet it's actually very not judgmental. You're seeing the the pain from which he's acting. That it's mm-hmm. not about the child. It's about him. Everything that he's doing is because there's something that hasn't been healed there. I think another one of those um, important moments for for small Allison is the party dress scene. Ooh, yeah. She's going, she's going to like a birthday party or something and doesn't want to wear a dress. And um, that's also something that I identify with because <laughs> like – I hated I I hated having to wear a dress to church on Sundays. Yeah, I did it because I Sunday, I literally I did it because I had no choice. I mean, my parents were just like, "We love you. You can wear your green tie-dye shirt and cut-off shorts <laughs> every other day of the week, but you have to wear a dress to church." Like that mm-hmm. those were just the rules. So I I sucked it up and I got over it and it's not like something that I hold on to like this like they forced me into the dress. <laughs> like it's not for me. It's not like that. But at Thanksgiving, it comes out at the dinner table. You're like, <laughs> I just completely the lose dresses. my mind. <laughs> my family is like, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he tells her like, you have to wear this party dress, and he he does this thing, and it's so. And this is the book, and this is also just Michael being so so brilliant. But he just he says to her, he says do you really want people to talk about you mm-hmm. and to look at you and to look at you differently because you're the only, you're the only girl not in a dress. And he says it to her in this way. That's like, it's so manipulative and freaky, but like he says it in this way. And you know that it's that thing where it's, it's doesn't have to do with her wearing a dress. It has to do that. He is so deeply and utterly ashamed of such a huge thing in his world. And he doesn't want people to look at him differently. And he doesn't want people to be talking behind his back. And so he's saying this to like a little kid. And that's a a very interesting moment to look at all of the psychology there with him and her. There are a couple of things. I always talk about Brene Brown. But there are a couple of things I've learned from my prophet Brene about... about these types of reactions that Mm -hmm. are so based in our own personal shame. 
And what I hear from him when he's saying this is, I know what it's like to be different and I don't want that Mm -hmm. for you Mm -hmm. because I'm not okay with it. Absolutely. And number two, if you're different, then that means I have to have empathy for you and that doesn't feel good Mm. because then I have to go to that dark place with you. Well, and as I'm, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I've had both of my parents say this to me at one point or another in my life is that you don't want your kids' lives to be hard. Sure. You don't want your kids to struggle or feel lesser than or to to be judged. And I think that so much of that that generation, Bruce's generation specifically, is that a, a gay person or a queer person will live an entire life of judgment, ridicule, shame, all of the above, you know? Mm-hmm where thankfully we've had a lot of people and a lot of a lot of things happen where it's becoming less and less of that. But for him, that's all he knows. And even though he is closeted, like he knows that if he were to leave his wife and leave his family and go be truthful to that part of him, that society would deem him an absolute monster garbage can of a human being. You know, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like growing up as a gay boy in a conservative place, I learned how to be deceptive very early. And I say the word deceptive instead of liar because that doesn't feel good to me. I don't want to call my little self a liar. Yeah. But I learned how to make little adjustments, little deceptions to keep all of the balls in the air that I was Mm -hmm. juggling. And Boy, oh boy, if you don't nip that in the bud. It will it, eat it will eat your soul away. It, it absolutely will. will. It will and eat your soul away. And don't think that you won't bring it into adulthood. You know? Don't think yeah. that those quiet deceptions aren't going to affect other relationships in your life. I know that they have mine. And so practicing that kind of honesty is you know, we I, I think sometimes people get maybe annoyed at how loud we are about pride and everything sure but it's at the same time we have to be like no you don't realize how damaging lying can be the other side of it is Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and i think that like that's why the whole like word pride and the whole idea behind it and everything it's the complete opposite of shame right pride to have pride in yourself to have pride in in all that you are all of the parts, the good, bad, the ugly, the scary, what what have you, to have pride in yourself versus shame. But if yeah. every part of your existence was like, like you were saying, which I absolutely experienced, um, not so much as a, as a little kid, but definitely um, in my like high school and college years. But like for me, I was like, you know, I can figure out how to compartmentalize, like we were saying at the very beginning, living essentially two different lives and two different people and those deceptions that go along with that and this sort of mental and emotional toll and physical that it takes on a person to continually not even just like deceive others to deceive yourself. Mm. But yeah, you see, you see that get to get back to fun home, you know, you see that in Bruce and you see that in the thing, the thing that he has been, deceiving himself and others of, it leaks onto everything. 
and he can't yeah. control it. And so when so when it starts to feel out of control, like the party dress thing, he tries to like you know trying to scrub out these leaks and these stains, stains. everywhere, but he yeah. but he can't. He can't. And he also, I'm gonna make a statement here. I I think that he absolutely knew that Allison was gay from a very young age. So there's there's another whole thing where he's like, this is the thing that I hate about myself the most, and now my daughter has it. So what can I do? Yeah. Dealing with that guilt of, did I pass it on to her? Yeah. Now, during this young portion of her childhood, he, we later find, has had relationships with men, mm-hmm. some underage. How would you describe Roy? Like, Roy is this character he first meets as like a junior in high school and kind of begins mm-hmm. grooming him in a yeah. Michael Jackson sort of way to be a lover and then eventually hires him mm-hmm. as an assistant, right? But he's right. just basically creating opportunities for them to be together and to be together mm-hmm. and have an affair. This part of the story, which is 100% part of Allison's actual experience. So who am I to criticize it? But I wonder if this is one of the things that kind of triggered me and made me feel icky because I I, think... I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that at all because it made me feel super icky as well. Yeah. I think that I am as sensitive to the don't be gay or else you'll become a pedophile as much as I am be gay or you will become a pedophile. (laughs) Right. And that's part of the show, like you said. So that's the way it is in the musical. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that as I've kind of been able to step away from it a little bit and see that not only was her dad a a closeted gay man, he was also a pedophile. And that's a really horrible and difficult thing to have to wrap your mind around one of your parents being like that. For sure. You know, it also adds to her trying to figure him out Mm -hmm. and trying to, to understand, but also being deeply ashamed of of that part of him too right you know but yes it also made me feel icky because he was a pedophile i'm actually kind of digging how we're going through all of small allison stuff yeah so normally in the show everybody it's kind of in a mosaic structure so we hop between adult allison talking about things for her memoir medium allison to small allison back to medium back to adult but i like i like that we're kind of going chronologically in a way yeah. It makes it a yeah. little bit easier to dissect. Yeah. There's this one moment when Bruce, the dad, takes the kids with him on like a business trip to New York. Yes. Uh. And they're all staying in a hotel and he's getting them ready for bed. But at the same time, he's getting ready to go out. Mm-hmm. And there's so much that isn't talked about. But you, you start to connect the dots. One of the kids like asks, why are there so many sailors in town right now? <laughs> And and you're like, oh, wait, did he plan this trip to coincide with Fleet Week? And then he tells small Allison, hey, I'm going to go out and get a newspaper, go to bed. And she's like, wait, what? What? No, like you're leaving us all alone in the big city in New York City in a hotel room. And he sings her this lullaby that is brilliant and sad and terrifying The lyric is something like, it's some people's job to stay and sometimes to go. 
And Mm -hmm. it's almost like the lullaby is about that moment, right? That she's supposed to stay in the hotel room and he's supposed to go. And yet, it's almost like he's telling her, you might be able to do something that I could never do. Yeah. Like it's both. It's somehow both. It's just a testament to the writing. It's such good writing. Like, Uh, geez. It's one of the definitions, I think, of the show. The show is able to hold two things at the same time. Yeah. All right. Let's go to Medium Allison. Yeah. Oh, wait. I guess that we should also talk about Ring of Keys. Oh, yeah. That's a moment. That's a moment. For sure. Well, there's a moment in the show where they're at like a diner, right? Yeah. Or they're out to eat somewhere. Yeah. They're like having lunch. Yeah. And this... uh, Gosh, it's a, is it a waitress or no? It's just someone a at the restaurant. Woman. Delivery. Okay, okay. And um, she's clearly a butch woman, and small Allison sort of immediately feels this kinship with this woman, and yeah, and then she sings a this song, called, which is one of the, probably the more lauded songs of the score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it really does talk about the importance of representation. That when you see somebody yeah. and you're like wow, I somehow get you, and I don't know how, but you matter. Mm -hmm. You matter in my life. Did you have any people like that in your life as a queer person? Yes. Yes, I did. Um, When I was a senior at BYU, I was also doing a production of uh, 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee at a theater in Salt Lake. And uh, the woman who played Rona, her name is Tamara Howell, and she's – an amazing human being. She was the very first, to my knowledge, I mean, probably as a kid I'd met people, but she was the first gay woman who I knew that was married with children. Mm. And one of the scariest parts for me with coming to coming to terms with my my sexuality and my in my world was that I I really was not sure that I could ever have like a a normal life. Like the whole like married with kids and like a nuclear family. Uh, I, yeah, that that idea. Like I hadn't seen that really done. I'd I'd seen lots of gay relationships in my life with men. I'd I'd never seen that before, and and I wasn't not out yet. Um, I was in that sort of scary, deceptive place of like you know double life in my brain and my in my body, and uh, I just remember. I was having like a horrible, horrible day and it was before rehearsal and I was like crying in my car and um, she she knew, like she knew exactly what was going on. I didn't have to say anything to her and she pulled me out of my car and just held me. And for me, that was that, was that sort of moment of really truly feeling seen and understood and also... I knew that this was a really, just really bad time <laughs> mm. and that it was not going to be forever. It was not going to be a forever bad time for me. That, you know, that idea of like having another human being not only just say like it gets better, but like I know it gets better and like look at, look at what I have and look at what I've done. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Did, did you have a person like that for you when you were either young or, or 26? Right. Which is also young. Which is also young. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no. I think that's kind of the tragedy of it all. Yeah. Is that for whatever reason, I felt like I had to do it all by myself. Yeah. And 
luckily I had an art form in which mm-hmm. I could go on stage and pretend to be other people when I hated myself. And I had a family who loved me no matter what. Yeah. But, yeah, I felt pretty alone. Yeah, I think a lot of people do. And I guess I should say that it's not that I felt alone and that there wasn't anybody there for me, but I felt like everybody who was there for me was there for their side of the argument. Mm, interesting. You know, there were. I think there were plenty of gay people who were like, "Yeah, tell the church to f off," and yeah, and you were like, "That doesn't," and like that, that doesn't, doesn't sit feel right good. with me. And then on the other side too, where you know, don't let the gays tempt you and take you away from us. And I'm like, <laughs> "What?" Like I literally am spending Sunday matinees with them and feeling the spirit. Like what? So, yeah, I think that that's where the that's where the alone came from. Allison has a really fun, uh, and I say fun because it's, it is one of the more enjoyable mm-hmm. things about the show is to watch her coming out experience in college. So yes. medium Allison is excited to go to college. She is now a cartoonist, I guess, start studying art history. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she kind of keeps feeling herself pulled to the gay alliance club, like the gay support club at the college. But at the same time, she's terrified of going in. Yes. Until she meets somebody named Joan, who doesn't think it's a big deal. Yeah. She's just like, okay, yeah. Yeah, we're gay. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes the the whole expectation about coming out is so big that it's actually a little on the New Year's Eve side of things. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> like, happy New Year. Oh, well, now, I mean, oh, I feel exactly okay. the same as I did like two seconds ago. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that that's what Joan provides for Medium Allison is just this feeling of, yeah, great. Can we continue on with our lives now? Mm-hmm. Which is great. And I think that's why it kind of propels her to just come out when she does. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to tell my parents. I'm going to write a letter home and I'm going to tell them that I'm gay. And she and her father have been writing back and forth pretty consistently, which I think is also mm-hmm. interesting. Like he... Yeah. He's invested in her collegiate life. It's not like she left home and now he's like, great, more time with boys. Like right. He's still writing her letters. And so then she writes a letter back saying that she's gay. And the parents have two very different responses. Correct. Um, understandably so. But also mm-hmm. kind of surprising. Yeah. The mom is really upset. Mm-hmm. I believe because her life has been so horribly altered by, by, by a the gay, gay experience. The dad is actually pretty casual about it. Like, yeah, he, he doesn't. He is it's very nonchalant. He's like, "Yeah, uh, I got your letter. Oh, by the way, I went to the store the other day. Mm-hmm. Got some new doorknobs. I don't know, just like very, very mundane." And then at the end, says something super passive aggressive, like, "Don't put a label on it," mm-hmm. which you know is exactly what I guess he did. Yeah, and does every day. Still, she's on cloud nine because she came out to her family, and so she ends up having her first sexual encounter with Joan. And when she kind of wakes up from this sexual experience, she has a great song called "Changing My Major to Joan," which is it's such a such it's a such good a good song. number. It's so it's so cleverly written. Yeah, and, and then and then there's like moments in it sprinkled too that like I was I was listening to the recording. Yesterday, um, I haven't I haven't listened to it in a, in a while, and a, a part of it made me really emotional because 
Um, the lyric where she says, it's it's later on in the song, she's sung all these things, and she says, you know, I'm changing my major to Joan. I thought all my life I'd be all alone. And oh. that idea of, especially as a young person and an older person, no, no matter where you are in your journey, it's like saying that out loud and being like, no, I, I thought I was going to be alone forever. It's like so heartbreaking. But the, the the number is like super uplifting and and also hats off to both Janine Desari and, and Lisa Cron because they wrote her like someone that actually sounds like a 19-year-old. Yes. So often, and I'm not going to name names, but like, you know, <laughs> when like people are writing like for things from from the perspective of a child or a teenager, they have them sound like not a child or a teenager and it makes me crazy what, because Jason Robert Brown they're yeah that's the one um <laughs> there are millions more honestly no there are but plenty. like that is that's an example because I, I've never met any 13 year old that talks or thinks that way but they just wrote her in such a awesome authentic way like it feels so truthful and it feels so exactly right because she's just like had this experience and she just can't like she can't believe it like she can't Mm -hmm. believe that someone so cool thought that she was cool and they made out and it was awesome like it's all of those things that when you're 19 years old like that's it man like what the heck that's so sweet when I saw the show originally, I actually saw um, Emily Skeggs, but mm. Emily went to college with a really good friend of mine and my writing partner, and so um, that's how I got tickets to see the show. No way. And um, she was just so – it was so great, and it was so just like the nail like right on the head. And mm-hmm. also the show's quite heavy, so to have those moments of like just being excited and confused, but you know, all of, all of yeah. the things, such a fun moment in the show. I think what I love about it is that it feels earnest to me, which is something that mm-hmm. I often think is missing in musical theater. And Janine Tesori trusts musical theater as an art form to be she enough totally to does. communicate feelings. We don't need to comment on it. We can just do it. Yep. And this is a great example of that. Medium Allison then takes Joan back home. Take Joan back mm-hmm. home. Bold. Right? Big bold move. Yeah. And Joan, by the way, what a rock star. They like get there and she's like, oh, I'm feeling tired. Can I go lie down? I'm really tired from finals. I'm sure you guys have things you'd like to talk about. Like, good for you. Smart, smart. Way to get out of the situation. You know what's going on. You know what needs to Mm -hmm. be said. Just take yourself out of it. You don't need to be there, girl. No. And that gives Media Allison the chance to talk to both her dad and her mom. Her dad leaves. Bruce leaves. Yeah. He's yep. just kind of like, whatever, you're home. Everything's great. You know, once again, perfect, perfect, perfect. We're not mm-hmm. talking about anything less than that. Mom, on the other hand, is an open, bleeding heart. And this is honestly my favorite moment in the entire show, if I'm being honest, is the song Days and yeah. Days. Judy Kuhn, everybody. Judy Kuhn. You know, at the Tony Awards that year, for Best Supporting Actress, you had Judy Kuhn uh, and then the Small Allison and Medium Allison, all three nominated. And they're all fantastic. I'm sorry I'm not bringing up their names. 
But who ended up winning was Ruthie Ann Miles, and I'm so glad that she did, especially because yeah, she's had so much heartbreak, and and I would never want to take away a Tony Award from a person of color. No. All of that being said, Judy Kuhn could have walked away with that award in any other season, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. Well, she's like the nomination queen as well. Like, oh, is she? she has, has she never yeah, won? Yeah, she's never won. She has, I think, I think she's had five or six nominations. Gosh dang it. That is a career, Alyssa. The fact... Yes. Like, if nothing else, if she had done nothing else in her career, like erase Pocahontas, like she was a singing voice of Pocahontas, she did Les Mis and Rags in the same Broadway season. She belted Mm -hmm. her brains out for Rags and then sang classical soprano as Cosette in Les Mis. Yeah, she's it, man. What a talent. She's the absolute real deal. One of my favorite voices... And then you see her in this show, and she is so grounded and so, once again, nuanced, perfectly cast, giving voice to this person that you never hear about. Mm-hmm. If anything, these characters are reduced to a Will and Grace type moment where it's like, oh, sure. I fall in love with the gay guy. And here she is dealing with true heartbreak of living day in and day out with a man who's not willing to talk about their actual relationship and the kind of deep, dark secrets that lie at the bottom of it. Yeah, so Judy Kuhn for the win in my book. Yeah, she's amazing. And that's what this song is about. By the end of the song, she says, I have suffered through this marriage day in and day Mm -hmm. out, and I am pleading with you to not give up your days like I have mine. This is so heartbreaking. (laughs) It is so heartbreaking. (sighs) So then... Bruce asks Al, uh, Medium Allison if she'd like to go for a ride, mm-hmm. like a drive in the car. And the time comes, and, you know, adult Allison, who is constantly watching all of this and commenting on all of these events that we've discussed in this episode, looks around and realizes that neither young Allison or Medium Allison is there. And so she now takes her place as herself and goes on this car ride with her dad. And all she wants from this drive is the opportunity to connect with her dad. And there's this song called Telephone Wire where, you know, she's screaming on the inside, like, talk to me, dad, say something. Okay, I'll say something at the next stoplight. At the next stoplight, I'll say something. And by the end of the drive, nothing's been said. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why I think that the original staging works so well. When I saw this in the proscenium at the Amundsen, I didn't feel like this moment was enough. Mm. I I thought, oh, finally, we're getting something from adult Allison. And then nothing happened. And I thought, how sad that we didn't get anything from our lead protagonist. And then when I saw how it was staged originally with her being so like integrated and almost like a part of the audience because she was constantly turning around and talking to different sides of the audience. Mm -hmm. You're rooting for her to have this moment with her dad. And so then when it doesn't come, you feel even more connected to her than you did before. Yep. I just, I can't believe I had such two polar opposite experiences watching this That's so interesting, but makes complete sense to me. Yeah. It's a testament to like, you know, direction and staging Mm-hmm. And the trickiness of trying to maneuver in a, on a, you know, in a touring space, because yeah. the thing is, like, you're not going to have what you had at Circle mm-hmm. in the Square or the public. You're just not. 
Right. Like you might you might get one spot out of your whole tour, but probably not because they have to be big houses because they want to make the monies. Yeah. But I can totally see how that would have been lost on you with the proscenium staging. Yeah, it's it's just interesting. Because that, that, that is the moment. I mean, you need and crave that. And then when it doesn't come, it's like, oh my gosh, no. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> mm-hmm. no. And to make it even more tragic, that was the last moment they really had together before mm-hmm. before he he dies. This gives way to, I mean, he's kind of poured himself into this project. Uh, like, a you know, he made his home this museum piece now he's restoring a, a a different home and is almost like working maniacally on it yeah and he explores all of that in the song called edges of the world which is really a, a soliloquy in many ways mm-hmm. that ends with him stepping in front of traffic and being killed which when i put myself in allison's shoes you you see how deeply he was triggered by your own coming out. Yep. And you realize, oh my gosh, like there is a degree of her taking that on, of taking on her father's death and feeling responsible for it. And how has that fueled her sense of humor or her sense of worth? And all of a sudden, everything starts making sense that you've seen throughout the rest of the show. But in a perfect moment of musical theaterness, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what we are ended with are the three Allisons all coming together that regardless of, you know, who dad was, we need to feel like a whole person. Right. Um, and the last number is called Flying Away, which obviously refers back to the game of flying that, mm-hmm. that small Allison yeah. did with her with her father, you know, right at the beginning of the show. And the way that she says it is so beautiful, saying that this was a perfect moment of balance where I was soaring above him, and yet it's only because she was on his feet. Like, are you kidding me? I know. It's just, it's like totally rip your heart out because the thing is, and she knows that even though it was tragic... And her dad was so tormented that without his existence, she wouldn't be able to have hers. Exactly. Both metaphorically and, I mean, and literally. Literally, yeah. Um, she wouldn't be alive. And because she fought so hard to live the opposite of her father, basically, she was able to, and, and continues as real life Alison Bechtel, to be a functioning, happy human being. I think that I sat in the theater for like 15 minutes after just like I wasn't really crying but I was just like sitting there trying to digest everything (laughs) that just that I just saw washed over you yeah yeah I don't know I don't even know what to say other than I love that this was an experience like that for you I think in a lot of ways it was I think it just felt just like that Ring of Keys song, it felt so nice to to be represented. Like this wasn't a punchline of something and this mm-hmm. wasn't like an angry lesbian duet. And mm. this wasn't a one-off character on a sitcom. This wasn't the Home Depot worker. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> it, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't any of those things. It was this 
really sad but really important story about a family and how mm. Allison fit in her family and how she survived and how they survived. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what do you think the legacy of the show is? I remember reading the story that like uh, some UN officials had been taken to the Broadway production of Fun Home because their home countries, it was still illegal to be gay. And so mm-hmm. the Americans who took them thought that it would be a good teaching opportunity for them. I honestly don't think that was a good decision. <laughs> did not go it did not go well. I mean maybe well. maybe it was. I don't know. I'm sure that they were very kind and diplomatic because they're literally diplomats. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also like I don't know if this is that story. This feels like such a western yeah, this story. Yeah, this is a very this is a western story for sure and um I think that the show will still have a life like, you know, in the past couple of years, we've seen some like regional productions done. They're generally in like smaller spaces in like fairly liberal communities. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. And I could talk about this next thing for like a really long time, but I'm going to have it be short. <laughs> I've been in for the show a couple of times, but I'm in a I'm in a weird age range. I'm. I'm in the middle of medium and, and adult. So in in like 10 years, I hopefully will get to play adult Allison, but I've passed I've passed medium. Fair enough. When I went in for the show a couple of times, I was the only queer woman brought in for the role. Really? Which is an interesting topic of conversation. And uh, we're actors, so we play lots of different types of roles. I am not saying that a gay woman is the only person that could ever do play a gay woman medium and adult Allison. Like that's mm-hmm. not what I'm saying at all. But uh, what I am saying is that those are the only roles. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was just interesting to me. It was kind of like a weird out of body experience because I I knew the other girls that were in for the productions that I was in for. So I wasn't just like assuming things about people's sexualities. I I know that they are straight people. Sure. It's just interesting. And like one of them told me like, oh, yeah, like I specifically like I I figured you'd be in for this, but I like thought of you in deciding what I would wear for this audition. So it's just like it's an interesting thing Hmm. to have a conversation about because a lot of times when I'm brought in for specific things, I'm told that I'm not feminine enough. Mm-hmm. Or that I don't read girly enough or hold myself girly enough, whatever whatever it may be. But the interesting thing is that these ingenue women who are also getting those those roles are also getting to play the gay women roles. So that's a conversation that I think um, people should start having because... It's, it's a conversation to ask why. And yeah. Is there something that we're not understanding about the queer experience that when we see queer people living their experience, we're like, well, that's not it, you know? (laughs) Right, yeah. It's just an an interesting thing to think about. And um, if you are a queer person, to to ask those sort of difficult questions and, yeah. I agree with you. And I also think that the conversation I would add to yours is – are we making liberal theater for liberal people? Mm. If that's the case, then we're maybe not having the kind of outreach that we could. I, I totally agree with that. 
once again, I was all by myself, like battling things out. I am really good at arguing the conservative case for things because mm-hmm. I argued myself for so long. And I think that many a conservative audience would see this show and think, oh, that poor, confused girl, too bad she didn't have a father who cared enough to hide it better. Right. Because from our perspective, from a more progressive perspective, we're like, absolutely, this person should have lived their truth. But if you don't believe that is truth, then the failure was the dad who just didn't do his job as a dad. End of story. Mm. So I... Yeah. I would love to encourage us as theater people to also create queer theater that is meant to not not appease a, a straight audience. I don't need like no, no, a, no, 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 a dear no. Simon yeah. or anything like that. Or was it not dear Simon, love Simon? <laughs> oh, I did. I didn't even like bat an eye. I was like, yeah, that's what that movie is called. <laughs> but like creating stuff that encourages us to have conversation regardless of what our opinions are. Yes, I like that a lot. I don't know. I'm not like I said, I'm not saying the fun home isn't that, but based on my own experience, if my hometown did fun home at their community theater, mm-hmm. that's what I imagine. That's would happen. what that's what. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for doing this, Allison or Allison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Allison, Alyssa. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you so much, yeah. Alyssa. <laughs> of course. I've been saying Allison for like two hours. For um, two hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you, Alyssa, for doing this. Uh, this was a wonderful conversation. Yes, thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. My pleasure. As always, if you have any recommendations for shows that we cover here on A Musical Theater Podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at a musical podcast for more great content. Alyssa, how can we follow you? And also please plug your podcast. Oh, sure. Um, my uh, Instagram is at Alyssa M. Simmons. And I'm also uh, a co-host on a Star Wars podcast called Inside the Tauntaun with um, some fellow Star Wars nerds and amigos of mine, uh, Daniel Dawson and Dino Nicandros. So you can find us uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts at Inside the Tauntaun and on all of the social medias. You could not find three more talented Star Wars nerds if you tried. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Anyways, if you like Star Wars, or even if you don't, you just want to listen to us be ridiculous, you can can listen. (laughs) That's fantastic. Thank you again, Alyssa. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Go have some fun. And by fun, I mean fun. Not fun as in funeral. Actual fun is really fun. Bye, everybody. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. 